of your Son, Savior of the world. Pray that we would know more of him now through your preached word. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you for that, and thank you. Thanks to all of you for being here today. What a, what a wonderful privilege it is together here on the Lord's Day. I was uh, yesterday, bright and early, left the house and went to a coffee shop to sit and study for a while. I was downtown. I was the only one there for three hours. It was great. Had four employees there serving my every need. And uh, maybe... Because it was six degrees when I left the house, maybe that had something to do with the fact that nobody else wanted to be out, but it was wonderful. I did apologize to them every time I went and got a refill on my coffee out of the carafe. I told them, I'm sorry I'm dipping into your profits for the day here with every cup I drink, but but while I was there, I, I read some out of the local newspaper that they had, and there were some comments there that also in something else I read, maybe on the internet, of just talking about how many churches were going to be closed today, that, you know, Christmas falls on Sunday, so they obviously need to close and not meet. And that was so foreign to my thinking, as it is to yours, obviously. Why would we want to not gather on the Lord's day and worship together? That's what God's people love to do. And so uh, they were uh, extolling the fact that, well, you know, people won't just won't come, you know, they'll stay home. So thank you that you love the Word of God and you love to be taught and you love to worship and you love to fellowship with other believers. Well, this morning on this special Lord's Day, though, we're going to be spending a little time together discussing the importance of right thinking. And we're going to do that because it is our thinking that influences everything about us. It's our thinking that prompts us to choose to act the way we do. It is our thinking that even creates our affections and desires. It is our thinking that results in emotions. In other words, there is no faculty of our being, of the inner man, that is not connected to thinking in some way. And as Christians, this is certainly true of our ongoing spiritual growth. Our growth spiritually involves learning to think rightly. Just a couple of verses about that, one that comes to mind, very familiar to us, is Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where Paul tells us, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And then in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, he gives us this counsel. He says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is is of good repute, if there is any excellence or if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. You could translate that, let your mind think about these things. So true spiritual growth is not merely a change in behavior. It's not merely a change in feelings. It is a change of thinking that produces then new affections and desires and choices and behavior and even emotions. What is the biggest key then in thinking rightly? Well, to cut to the chase, it is the Holy Spirit using timeless truth. 
Scripture to affect our beliefs, our perspectives, our minds, our minds. And of course, all of Scripture is profitable to accomplish that. So our passage this morning certainly is part of that. We need to keep that in mind as we look at it together this morning. It's profitable to help us think rightly in the passage we're spending time is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. Like I said, when I read Philippians 2, that might not be a normal Christmas passage you'd think about reading on Christmas Day, but it is one. I could say the same thing about this passage. You might not normally think of 1 Peter chapter 1 as being a Christmas passage to preach from, but it is about the coming of Christ into the world. Let me read verses 15 and 16 for us. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world, there's Christmas right there, to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now, obviously, this short passage does not address every topic of life and give us instruction on how to think rightly about all those areas, but the three topics that do surface here are three that certainly require right thinking, and that is how we'll study it this morning. Here's number one, what we find in this passage. Number one, right thinking about the Savior. Right thinking about the Savior. Now, Paul is going to quote an important statement here in verse 15, but before he does, he qualifies the statement in a couple of ways. The first thing he says about it is, in verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement. Now, that term trustworthy was a a common term of their day. They would use it to refer to a statement that was familiar to them on one hand, And they would also use it to refer to statements that were recognized as as a, a key summary of some key way of believing in the religious realm. It would be a way to denote a statement that was recognized as a summary of a key doctrine. Therefore, Paul is telling his young disciple, Timothy, that young man he trained up in the in the faith and discipled, he's telling him something like this: Timothy. This statement that I'm about to say is one that you're familiar with. You know it. In fact, you know that it is a fundamental element of our theology. We also find a second qualifying phrase. He says it's deserving of full acceptance. That adjective deserving, you could translate it worthy, it carries the nuance of something that's weighty. We say that sometimes, that if something is very significant, we might even say that it is, it is weighty, it has weight to it. That's what it means. So the statement is weighty, significant. Therefore, all who claim to be believers must wholeheartedly and completely accept this saying. So what is this familiar, trustworthy, yet weighty statement that deserves complete acceptance? In verse 15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
This short statement is a condensed summation of the heart and soul of the gospel message. And evidently, because he worded it the way he did here by calling it a statement that was trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, evidently it was a well-known saying in the early church. Well, the words are chosen carefully, so let's examine them. First of all, the words Christ Jesus summarize who he is. Christ is that title that points to the reality that he was indeed the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed king that the Old Testament promised for centuries would come. It's a title, therefore, that points to his deity. In addition, this divine second person of the Godhead became the earthly Jesus at the incarnation. Now, we studied the incarnation last week, that moment in Nazareth, nine months before his birth in Bethlehem, when God, as it were, overshadowed the young virgin named Mary. And you'll remember I told you about the analogy there to something in the Old Testament. Just as God overshadowed the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant with his presence that was seen as the Shekinah glory cloud, just as he overshadowed the tabernacle and the Ark, Scripture tells us that he miraculously overshadowed Mary, this young woman, actively infusing Mary's womb with Jesus, the Son of God. So this name Jesus points to the doctrine of his humanity. Christ Jesus then confirms that this one was both truly God and truly man. And it is this one that verse tells us, came into the world. The one who took on the human nature and a human body at the incarnation was born in Bethlehem and he lived on this earth for 33 years. This raises another significant doctrine related to Christ. It's the use of that verb came. That verb came fits with the doctrine of his pre-existence. In other words, it does not say that Jesus came into existence. It does not say that he was created in order to say that he came into the world. By necessity, he had to already exist somewhere else, and he did. We read that in Philippians 2, enjoying the glories of heaven for eternity. And that is the reality. The one who existed eternally as the second person of the Godhead That is the one who came into the world. That term world is cosmos. It's a common word in the New Testament. It means world, but we depend on the context where it's found to tell us how it's being used. Here in our verse, it refers to the world of lost humanity. It's the realm that we live in, the realm of the spiritually blind, the realm, the world of the spiritually dead. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 5, 19, that the whole world is in the power of the evil one. It's into that world Jesus came, the realm in which we live. So what an amazing thought. The Bible tells us that it's through Christ and by him that all things in the universe were created. And yet the very one who created the entire universe himself humbled himself, as Philippians 2 read and came into our world. And here he ate 
and he slept and he walked and he talked and he entered into relationships with other people. He enjoyed all the normal aspects of human life. He even experienced the normal trials of life. He was tempted as we are, and yet Scripture says, without ever sinning. So the obvious question begged is, why did the eternal second person of the Godhead do that? And verse 15 tells us, to save sinners. That was Christ's mission. He didn't come here on a social mission. He didn't come here on a military mission or a political mission. He came in obedience to the Father on this mission to deliver sinners from death and darkness and sin and hell and judgment. He came to rescue sinners from this world. Now, last week we studied the angel's announcement to Mary Luke chapter 1, but I did mention to you again the angel's announcement to Joseph as well. That's in Matthew chapter 1. You remember what the angel told Joseph in Matthew 1 verse 21? He said that she, the betrothed Mary, the one he was engaged to, will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And as well, note what the Lord himself said about himself. Matthew 9, 13, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Luke 19, verse 10, it says that he came to seek and save that which was lost. That was his mission. He did not come here to somehow prompt us to seek to be better people to try to save ourselves. He didn't come here to enable us to save ourselves. He came to do that himself to rescue us, to save us. And while on earth, he did all that was necessary to accomplish that mission, the saving of sinners. He lived a perfect life in complete, perfect obedience to the law of God in our place, in people's place, because people could never do that. And then he willingly gave himself in death on the cross in their place to pay for their disobedience. And then he rose from the dead to prove who he is and that all that saving work was effective. If he had not fully accomplished that mission, then we would have no hope hope because we are sinners. Now, this term sinners denotes man's constant violation of God's law. Not every sinner is as wicked as every other sinner. But Scripture is clear that all humans fall into that classification. Romans 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All people are sinners by nature, born that way. We're not born innocent. We're not born neutral. We're not born good. All men are sinners by nature, and that is proven then in the experience of every single person. And because of that reality... All people are utterly unable to solve their most significant problem, and that is the problem of their own fallen, depraved condition. Our only hope was for Christ to come into the world to save sinners, to rescue us. So in the verbs came and save, you have the whole action of the Savior in history summed up decisively from the incarnation through his birth, his perfect life, the crucifixion, 
the resurrection, through the ascension back to glory, all of that, God's divine purpose and redemptive plan revealed in this one, the Savior, Christ Jesus. In him alone, salvation is made available to sinners. Now, these are the facts about Christ, the Savior. All who claim to be Christians must embrace what is said there. Now, the mention that we are sinners has surfaced already the second topic on which we must think rightly. So number two, right thinking about self. Right thinking about self. Our culture is obviously very confused when it comes to understanding self. People are desperate to find their identity or to be what they must say is true to themselves or to be authentic are the catchwords today. And yet, most ignore the only way to actually know who they really are. And that source of right thinking about self is, once again, Scripture, the timeless truths of Scripture about self. Now, once the timeless truths of Scripture are ignored, then all sorts of philosophies and perspectives and techniques and protocols are developed in order to come to some, some sense of identity and purpose. You've got the worn-out versions of, of the so-called uh, importance of having a high self-esteem and the, the worn-out idea uh, for a while now that positive confession brings about good things in life and negative confession brings about bad things, all the worn-out sort of perspectives, all the way to the more complicated psychological systems of understanding self that are still developed today. But as I've already said, it is thinking that results in how we live and behavior. By the way, it's even true that there's a powerful connection between our thinking and our physical health. But we must let Scripture define what right thinking is on any subject that it addresses. And one subject it certainly addresses is what a right view of self must include. Now, we're not going to be able to look at all that the Bible teaches about human beings, though all of it is important. For example, one passage, or our passage, doesn't address the truth, a very important truth, that all people are created in the image of God. That's very important. This truth is what gives dignity to every single human being. Regardless of who they are, regardless of what they've done, each person bears God's image. But that doesn't mean we should think pridefully about ourselves. In fact, we we cannot hold a prideful view of self and expect to ever come to understand our true identity and purpose. There's a verse in Romans that cautions us in that regard. It's by the Apostle Paul again. It's Romans 12 verse 3. He says, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think but to think as so as to have sound judgment. And the wording is there that to be sane, to have sound judgment, to be sane is to think rightly about self. To think wrongly about self is insanity. It's appropriate that Paul should write that because he's a good example of the right way to think about self. He understood that the image of God in man, as important as it is, he understood that that image 
from the fall onward is marred because of our most significant problem, we are sinners. In fact, as he wrote this to Timothy, evidently the very mention of the word sinners in our passage awakened within the apostle this fresh evaluation of of himself. So he adds this thought back to verse 15. Among whom I am foremost of all. Paul never got away from the fact that salvation was intended for sinners. And the more he increased his grasp of of who God is and the magnitude of his holiness as as well as the magnitude of his grace, the more he deepened the consciousness of his own sinful state. Now, the words foremost of all, though, when he says, I'm the foremost of all sinners, that's not a chronological measurement. It doesn't mean that he was saying, well, I'm the first one that's at the front of the line of all the sinners. No, it's a reference to status or degree. Paul ranked himself as the most prominent of sinners, the most well-known example of a sinner. If you want to know who a sinner is, look at me, is what he's saying. And interestingly, Paul chose the present tense of the verb, I am. He did not say, I was the foremost sinner. I am. That's not just rhetoric. That's not just exaggeration or hyperbole. Paul was conveying his deeply felt sense of unworthiness. He recognized that he still sinned. Even though he had been forgiven, rescued, redeemed, set apart unto God. Now, combine what he says here in our passage about himself with a couple of other famous statements that he made about himself. One's in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles. That's saying it a different way. I'm the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, he said, because I persecuted the church of God. Then in Ephesians 3.8, he calls himself the very least of all the saints. Not only the least of all the apostles, the least of all the saints. Or to say it as he did in our text, the foremost of all sinners. That was Paul's self-image. His honest evaluation of himself. I mean, don't, don't do what some would do. They'd read this and go, poor Paul. Just really struggling with a low self-esteem. No, this is healthy thinking because it is biblical thinking. It is such a view that serves to keep a person humble and therefore grateful. The fact is, anyone who has a growing comprehension of the holiness of God will have a growing understanding of his or her own sinfulness. I like the way the commentator John Kitchen put it. The closer one comes to the light, the more dirt one sees. So, although Paul was, by God's grace, saved, although he was, by God's grace, an apostle, what overwhelmed him was that he was just a sinner, redeemed through the saving action of Christ Jesus, rescued. Now, a word of caution, this right thinking about self is not the same thing as being morbidly introspective. It's not the same thing as just dragging a ball and chain 
of all your failures in life around with you, connected to you. It's not what I like to say sometimes, living an Eeyore-type life. It's not that. It's just simply being honest. Might I even say authentic. And this authenticity, this honesty is necessary for someone to ever find out what it means to really be happy and whole. Right thinking about the Savior, right thinking about self, and finally, right thinking about salvation. Verse 16. Yet for this reason, I found mercy. That's a very strong adversative there, yet or but. There's, there's two forms of that, and this is the strong form. He's emphasizing this incredible contrast between the utter sinfulness of man, of himself, and God's merciful action toward him. And the phrase, for this reason, is pointing back to how he's just described himself as the foremost of sinners. It was because of that reality, he says, that he found mercy. What a wonderful term mercy is. I love the term mercy. In its most simple definition, mercy means this, not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy, not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is God's compassionate pity toward those who are suffering, particularly suffering because of their sin. And Paul says he found it. And for him, that was at that moment when he encountered Christ, you know, on the road to Damascus. He experienced the the merciful salvation from sin that's found only in Christ. And I love the way he said the word found here. Some of these grammatical issues don't come out in the English automatically. But he wrote it in the passive voice, not the active voice. He didn't say it as if... He was complimenting himself that I, this is what I did, I searched for it and found it. It's written in the passive voice, which means that God is the one who took the initiative to come to him to show him mercy. God is the great hound of heaven who seeks out sinners to be merciful toward them. The fact is no person actively seeks anything about God's salvation on their own. Romans 3, verse, verses 11 and 12. There is none who understands, none who seeks for God. There is no one who does good, none, not even one. That's a quotation from the Old Testament. Instead, God's mercy finds us. And here is the specific purpose for God extending mercy to Paul, he says, verse 16. So that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience. It was through Paul that God would put on display his compassionate mercy and grace for the world to see. Or as verse 16 more fully puts it, that Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience. Demonstrate means what you think it would mean, to show or prove. And and the voicing of that verb doesn't come out in the English, but the voicing is such in Greek that it's saying that Jesus did it all for his own sake, his own glory. And what he did was put his own patience on display, he says. 
There are other verses about that. Romans 2 verse 4. Romans 2 verse 4 asks a question. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience toward you? Stop there for a moment. That's a great question. God is so kind, patient, and gracious toward people. Paul wakes him up with that question. Are you thinking rightly toward all that? Not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? Romans 9.22, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Paul says, I, I have experienced this, the patience of God. And here in our text, he even added the, the adjective perfect. It just means his patience wasn't missing anything. It's a way of saying that the magnitude of our sin before God requires an unlimited supply of mercy. It needs the kind of mercy that has no limitation on it and patience with no limitations on it to, to deal with our sin. Something else interesting grammatically is the word example. Paul says, I'm an example of this. Example was a term they would use in the world of art at that, day, that time. The artist might draw an outline first or a sketch of an outline before making the, the final version of the piece of art. So this is saying that the way God extended mercy to Paul not only benefited Paul personally, it was God, as it were, sketching out an outline for all others of all time to see and observe how he deals with sinners. Look at Paul. He's a sketch of it. The prototype of God's mercy to sinners. And Paul would say, not only that, I'm living proof that God can save any kind of sinner. That is the purpose of our salvation, to display God's grace, God's power. We are here to be trophies of his patience to put on display the reality that God is able to turn rebels into worshipers of him. Our love for Christ, no matter what happens in the world. Our lives of service to him, no matter what we're going through, puts on display the extent to which a merciful God holds back his wrath against sinners. But not everybody can say it. He says in verse 16, the only ones who know this mercy, the only one who experienced this patience, those who would believe in him for eternal life. It's a future tense there. You could even translate it, those who are going to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, after Paul wrote this, in case after case, centuries throughout the centuries, there was going to be this chain of salvation formed by, by links. The links are the sinners that God rescues out of the world, the ones who believe. And this belief or faith, what does that mean? It's not a, a mere intellectual assent to some facts. It's a personal act of the will, this kind of saving faith. It's a personal act of the will to trust in the person of Jesus Christ and his finished work of redemption, to trust in him and that work alone as your only hope for salvation. There is a sense of surrender 
in this kind of faith. It's built into it, this kind of trust. That I stop trusting in myself, in my own ways, and my own perspectives, and I give myself to him. The outcome of that faith, our text says, is eternal life. And that eternal life does not come any other way. Just a few more thoughts about that word life. In the New Testament, it's used of the supernatural life of God. So it's saying this is what true believers have. They taste the supernatural life of God within them now. And it's eternal life in the sense that they'll enjoy it in its fullest sense in heaven when they die. But only the ones who believe. Now at this point in my study, I've got to tell you something. This week, I noticed my word count. I construct my sermons based on a word count, not a page count. Words counts are more accurate, just to give you hope. This is how I do it. And at this point, I realized I wasn't even close to my word count yet. So I'm thinking, I've got time for a second sermon Sunday morning. Now, I wasn't thinking that, but I was thinking about something we'd studied in John chapter 4. If you're visiting with us, we've just completed the study of the Gospel of John. It took us about four, four and a half years. Somebody asked me recently, what was your favorite part? What, what was something you took away from that study? What was your favorite section to preach and all that? It was a hard question to answer. <laughs> but what, part of my answer was John chapter 4. The scene of Jesus interacting with the woman at the well. My Thoughts were taken to that when I studied what life means, eternal life means. Here's why. You can turn to it. I'm not going to preach a whole sermon, but you can follow a couple of verses in John 4. John 4, verses 1 through 15, is the account of Jesus' interaction with a Samaritan woman. It would be very unusual for a Jewish man to even want to go through Samaria, but to stop at a Samaritan well and then to talk to a Samaritan woman? Jesus did that. She came out to the well while he was there to get some water. And they interacted a bit. And Jesus even asked her for a drink of water. You can see the disciples, you know, doing this. No, don't. Let's go. He asked her for a drink of water. And then he said this in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now that set the woman back. That was perplexing to the woman. She didn't know what Jesus was talking about when he said living water. However, when he mentioned living water, he was giving her, in that short phrase, the very heart of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that in Jesus and in him alone, we find God's free gift of living water. Living water represents eternal life, the same thing, put in poetic form. Living water represents the life of God in the soul. It represents the forgiveness of our sin. It represents the Holy Spirit taking up residence in our hearts. It represents the fullness of life that we'll enjoy in heaven beyond the grave. Living water. So here's the point of Jesus' conversation with that woman. The bottom line is that God created us with a spiritual thirst. And it's a thirst that only He can quench. And it's only quenched by the living water that He offers. 
that's received through faith alone. Well, the woman expressed her perplexity to Jesus. <laughs> I don't get it. So he answered her and he said this in verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water, meaning the well that you've come out to get, everyone who drinks of that water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. Water I will give him, Jesus said, will become in him or her a well of water springing up to eternal life. And that word springing up just means to jump up within the soul. And the idea Jesus meant by using the term is, is related to soul satisfaction. It jumps up in the soul. It springs forth. It satisfies the soul. Soul satisfaction. The deepest kind of satisfaction that there is is found only in him. And it's a satisfaction that the world can never take away. Of course, that does not mean that we never feel any disappointment. We do. It doesn't mean that there's no pain in life. It doesn't mean that we don't sense grief. We do. But it does mean that regardless what goes on, there is a spiritual resource available to meet every spiritual need. So with this language, Jesus was making the point that everything else, every earthly thing, will always fail to satisfy our souls. But Jesus alone completely satisfies spiritual thirst, the greatest thirst of all. The thirst that's in every soul, whether or not a person recognizes it. Augustine wrote these familiar words to God, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. But there's a condition. Just like in our text, he says, for those who believe, they have eternal life. In the text in John 4, there's a condition for having spiritual thirst satisfied. Jesus put it in poetic terms there. He said, everyone who drinks. That's very important. He didn't say everyone who tries to buy it. He doesn't say it can be earned. He doesn't say you get it as the result of some religious act or religious rite. He simply says, everyone who drinks. And drink is a metaphor for that simple trust in him. Do you know in John 7, there was another passage that connected to the same idea? John 7, 37 and following. Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He, now he changes it back to belief. He who believes in me, that's the same as drinking. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So combine all of that with our passage back in 1 Timothy. The bottom line truth about our salvation is that we were saved to be trophies of God's grace, trophies of his mercy and his patience. We live eternally as a display that God is a saving, rescuing God. I am telling you, this is what gives me identity. I'm not trying to find myself. I'm not trying to figure out my identity. I'm not wondering what my purpose here is on earth. 
It's been settled for a while. I'm here to be a trophy of God's grace, to live for his glory no matter what happens, and to be an example to others of how to know their creator. Everything that happens to me, everything that I experience is understood and interpreted through that grid, that thinking. There are times I'm hit hard by the waves of the trials of life. And as Paul even said in 2 Corinthians, there are times I'm I'm knocked down, but I'm not knocked out. I start remembering again who I am and why I'm here. How sad it is that most of the world, due to their wrong thinking, looks for satisfaction in everything except Jesus. I got a recent newsletter from one of our missionaries. Some of you probably got it from Mark Borsick. I just read it yesterday. There again, it connected with my sermon. You know, he mentions in his newsletter the famous mathematician Blaise Pascal. Pascal, really how you say it, Blaise Pascal, was this brilliant mathematician who lived during the so-called Enlightenment, it's that period of history following the Reformation, and really, if you just want to summarize it, the ruling philosophy of, of the period was that there's no need for God now. Anyway, at the age of 31, Pascal was possibly experienced a conversion experience to the truth, to the Lord. And from then on, the rest of his life, until he died at 39, he applied his brilliant mind. I don't have time to go into all the things in mathematics he created and came up with. Brilliant. From the moment of that interaction and conversion to the Lord until his death, he applied his brilliant mind to theology and the study of God. In fact, this is in Mark's newsletter, he said this, which prompted the philosopher Voltaire, to label Pascal as a fanatic. I've been reading some of Pascal's works along the way. Most recently, I've been reading his most influential theological work. It's a book simply entitled Thoughts, in English is the title. It's a landmark in French prose. Thoughts by Blaise Pascal. Anyway, all that, just to read you one quote from Pascal. That was in Mark's newsletter. Very insightful observation. Listen. There once was in man a true happiness, of which now remain in him only the mark and empty trace, which he in vain tries to fill from all his surrounding, seeking from things present. But these are all inadequate, because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. The gospel is the message of good news to all people that that void can be filled. They can be rescued. No one will ever be barred from Christ because of earthly sort of categories. No one will be barred from Christ because of ethnicity or gender or intellect or education or nationality or wealth or social position. That is the glory of God's grace and mercy. I want you to make all this personal this morning. 
Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you come to the place in your life where you wanted to drink from living water that satisfies the soul? If you do not, you must recognize that you need the gospel as much as that immoral woman of Samaria needed it. You need it as much as the religious hypocrite Paul needed it. Moral people, religious people, good people are in reality sinners. But no type of sinner is beyond God's grace. In Isaiah, we find the invitation this way, Isaiah 55, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You can drink of other sources. You can try to fill your life with the things of this world, whether it's money or fame or power or busyness or activity. Those satisfy for a time, but they won't permanently. But Christ came into the world to provide living water And he's the only one who can satisfy your soul. And that is the reality that we ultimately celebrate at Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this short passage that is so poignant to help us think rightly about these three important topics. Lord, we thank you for the Savior. We thank you that he was worthy to be the sent one to earth, to be our Savior, to rescue sinners from the world. It's our heart's desire to live for Him. I pray if there's anyone here that's never come to that place of true surrender to say, this is what I want. Give me living water. That you would open their hearts to trust and believe in our Savior's name. Amen.